and you are watching episode 15 of the Life of Gem live video podcast. Still being filmed from my home in the Inland Empire. I'll be back in the studio soon. My producer, DJ April Duran, is here, I'll bet virtually. And I have a special virtual guest today. I'm so excited. She's a writer, a lawyer, and an author of the book, We Are No Longer Babylon. And her name is Elsa Valmigiano. So we're going to be talking writing with Elsa and her book, which is an amazing book. It's inspiring. It's a book of essays. I've read it twice now. And the thing I got from reading it twice is that the whole book is a rumination on loss and grief. And we're going to talk about that. And that's why this episode is called Writing Grief. And um, the first chapter of her book, uh, it's actually an essay, is about her grandfather's death. And the first chapter of my memoir is about my father's death, the day he died. So I'm going to read this very short passage. It's an excerpt from the first chapter of my memoir. And then I'm going to intro Elsa and bring her in. You're going to love her. She's like spitfire. So here's a short expert from my story, A Shit Day, that ran in the Inlandia Journal. And just to set it up, um, when this piece starts, the paramedics are working on my father, who's um, collapsed. He's on hospice and has pancreatic cancer. So here we go. A shit day. Why did I always focus on the bad stuff? Why hadn't I been to see my dad more often? What was I running from? Why was I trying to be someone else? A high-powered lawyer who never saw her family. Dad was always there for me, even if he was drunk. A drunk dad is better than no dad at all. I remember as a kid, dad playing cards with me and my sisters when mom had to work late at the restaurant. Dad would wake up early every weekend to make us pancakes with jelly inside. Bacon so crispy it would crumble in your mouth. Dad was always there. I jump back to the present as the paramedic looks at me and asks me again, shall we go on? I look at him and say, no. Later, I watch as they cover my father's body. It's quiet like in a church. My dad is gone. The word gone repeats in my head. I miss my dad's voice saying my name. And it's almost like I can still hear him. Am I imagining it? Or is that his voice whispering my name in my ear? There is so much I still want to say to my dad. Shaking my head, I sigh and listen to my mom weeping. My twin sister, Jackie, is pacing outside, staring into the sky. We call my little sister, Annie, and she's on her way back. The paramedics wheel my father's body out. My heart stops, or maybe it just breaks. Tears run down my face and I wipe them away. I have so much regret, I can taste it. I fall into my head and go back. I have to figure out who I am 
And who do I want to become? Maybe I have to start at the beginning. That's my story. That's an expert excerpt. And then I go into my childhood stories. Now, oh no, it's kind of sad. But um, it took me years to write that story, years and years. My dad died over a decade ago. Now, let me introduce my guest to get this amazing conversation going. Elsa Valmigiano is the author of We Are No Longer, I'm going to say this right, We Are No Longer Bibilan, her debut essay collection from New Rivers Press. Elsa is a recipient of their Editor's Choice selection from the 2018 Many Voices Project a competition in prose. Her poetry and her prose have appeared or are forthcoming in various literary journals, including Mud Season Review, Yes, Poetry, Northridge Review, Anomaly, Cherry Tree, Tramp Set, and others. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Mills College and has performed in numerous readings. She is a best of the net and a Pushcart Prize nominee. You can go to her website, slicingtomatoes.com, which is uh, on our banner. And on that website, Elsa showcases a directory of Filipina artists alongside her poetry and prose. Welcome, Elsa. Glad to have you. What a resume. Thank you. Thank you for, oh, yeah. Thank you for that introduction. Well, you're fantastic. Let's talk about how we met. We were just talking about this off air. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So I was following you on Twitter when I was on Twitter. And one of the things that caught my eye was that you were an attorney and a writer. And I was like, wow, we have so much in common (laughs) Just just in that alone. And so I started following you and reading your blog, um, your life in the Inland Empire, which I'm very familiar with. Not that I'm from there, but my sister went to UC Riverside. And so my best friend also lived out there for a little bit. And so I'm very familiar um, with the area. Um, And so how we really, I think, got to talking with each other was that you had published this piece, I believe, in Mother Magazine. And it was about um, infertility and, you know, failed IVFs. And, um, and I remember a line from that article where you had, you know, just taken this, you bought a pregnancy test and you went into the Walmart bathroom. And one of the profound lines that just has stuck with me ever since was, there are no atheists in Walmart bathrooms. And I was no. just like, damn. <laughs> and I just you know, as you painted this picture of what it was like just being in that bathroom stall and really praying and hoping, you know, like having this kind of spiritual experience in all places in a bathroom, um, you know, in a public bathroom, it was just like, wow, I can really feel what you were feeling. Um, yeah. And then, so I remember I messaged you over that and we just started talking and and then here we are, we're friends. <laughs> so, I mean, it really was yeah. kismet. We're both writers. We're both lawyers. We both, both have dealt with infertility. One of the stories in your essay collection um, that I love the mm-hmm. most, that I've read numerous times, but it's always hard for me to read, is Blighted, about a blighted ovum experience that you had. Right. And that 
that was my failed IVF was a blighted ovum. And I had no idea what it was when it happened. Right. But I, I miscarried right. at 10 weeks and thought I was having a baby. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, going to 10 weeks is a pr- pretty far into the pregnancy to miscarry, you know? Right. Right. No, I totally can relate because um, I'm pretty sure I wrote this in the essay, but, uh, you know, we had been also at 10 weeks and Mm -hmm. you I had never heard of, you know, a blighted ovum or an embryonic pregnancy. I didn't even know that was really, you know, a thing because the way I imagined miscarriages was always also like always the expulsion of a fetus into, you know, wherever into a toilet or you know whether you're taking a shower or something like it just dropped from your body and there was no drop and so I thought and I'm sure you did too like oh it's this is happening like the the pregnancy is not dropping it's carrying um and so yeah I undergoing that experience it was you know it was shocking it was a learning experience it sucks that that had to be the learning experience I'm sure you felt that way too Um, and it was just very, I just remember being very surprised, you know, because you go in with this expectation that everything's fine. And then you learn the scientific thing that you just, for me, I was just like, wait, what, what what is that? You know, go home, (laughs) Google it. What is this? Yeah. Yeah, And uh, people don't talk about it as really the problem. And one of the reasons I wrote my story stalling and I performed it in an out at a theater in Burbank was because I really wanted to demystify this concept. And women don't talk about being infertile. Women don't talk about the fact that your fertility drops off a cliff at 37 because we see this all these women getting pregnant in their 40s. But it's usually through intervention after 40. And um, it costs a lot of money. And um, my husband and I didn't even start trying until I was 36. And we've been together for years and years, decades. And so I think um, at that time, we'd been together since we were 20. So 16 years when we started trying. And we always tried not to get pregnant. So I was like, we could have had fun all those years, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, I actually, though, when I did have my miscarriage, that was through, um, it was through a natural pregnancy. We actually didn't have intervention at all, like Mm -hmm. no IVF, no IUI. We conceived naturally. Um, But yeah, it was, it was pretty, um, I don't want to say devastating. I think that's the adjective that I'm expected to say (laughs) Um, from people who think about miscarriages, even for those that who have experienced it. But I think for me, um, having gone through the experience, when I go through any experience that's very significant like that, my instinct is to write about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I actually, I think it was, I think it was actually your article that triggered me writing about it. Um, if, I, if I like fairly think about it. Um, and, and, you, just- and you capture it so beautifully. Sorry to interrupt you, but you talk no. about what it's like. It's very clinical, you know, when you're being examined and they you know, they put the wand inside of you. And I remember my very expensive Newport beach doctor telling me very matter, matter of factly, um, there's no heartbeat. And I was by myself 
in Newport. I had to drive home. I couldn't even drive. I think I, I sat in the parking lot and cried and then uh, calmed down, went to a coffee shop, calmed down and drove home and uh, talking to my husband on the phone. And I was just so amazed at how matter of fact he was. I mean, it wasn't like nurturing, like, I'm sorry. It was just like, no, it's, it's gone. You try again. And I was wow. like, oh, no, I can't actually. I'm yeah. done. I, I was done. I was I was like, I can't. You know, I can't go through that. I would say I was devastated. I had to reconcile my loss of what I expected my life to be. And I, I, it turned out okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My, my doctor actually was super compassionate. She was very, That's very great. sweet. Oh, she um, was a woman too, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. She was course, very, yeah. very compassionate and very sweet. And I don't know what it is. I think I just went into like, my brain goes into legal mode sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I was very like, okay, well, if that's the case, then we need to do this, this, and this, like immediately. Like I wasn't going to grieve. I think I'm, you know, if I was going to grieve, I was going to do it at home with my husband, but I wasn't going to do it in office. And so Mm -hmm. I just became very, um, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism, but it just became this very like, okay, so now we're going to do step B, C, D, and E, and, you know, whatever we need to do next. Um, yeah. yeah, in order to have safe, you know, DNC, because I was very much like, can I get the DNC today then? Because I don't, if that is the case, then I don't want to go through medical issues that could be so much yeah. worse for me. Um, so, yeah, so that, yeah, I mean, I think when I look at it, I do, I, you know, how we write, you know, briefs and stuff. And they're very, um, I don't know, dry. And not to say that the piece is dry. I think Blighted, the way I wrote it has, has some sort of aesthetic to it because you're writing about a painful experience because you are a literary artist. You really want to make sure those sentences stick, that you really want to pull your reader into your shoes and feel it. And that's a very difficult thing um, because you're yeah. writing about something that is a painful experience, but at the same time, it's also art, the way you're presenting it. And um, I've, I've been really surprised and moved by the reception of that essay of other women coming forward, regardless of what ethnicity they are yeah. and coming forward with their own stories. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm always shocked because I just, when I'm writing my stories, I write them. And I, and I guess I'm just naive thinking like, oh, no one's going to read this. No right. one's going to connect to this. Right. And then they do. And they have such a tremendous response. And, you know, I get DMs, I get texts, I get emails. And um, I'm really, really moved by their own stories of what we can exchange. And then I feel like then it's, then it becomes like a, a storytelling on both sides, not just me, but I'm also listening. Definitely. And I think you're opening up that dialogue, which is very important. And, you know, the thing is, I sometimes look at stories later and go, hey, did I write that? Wow, that's not too bad, right? And you're like, how did I write that? I go into, and we'll talk about our process later, but some of my best pieces just happen organically where I go into this almost trance-like state and can write it in one draft. And the the harder ones are the ones that are like pulling teeth. And I have stories that come out both ways, but um, I wanted to talk about um, 
how when I was reading your book again, it was just so full of grief. Your first um, essay in the collection is called Wait, and it's about the death of your grandfather. Um, was it hard to write that essay or did that come out easy? That's an interesting story, the origin of Wait and why I wrote it. So, uh, so this is the origin story of how I started writing that essay. So there was, I didn't have any intention actually of ever writing about my grandfather's funeral, but um, you know how there's submission calls for journals and you see them, right? And you're going to submit to them. Yeah. And I saw a submission call, I believe it was in Creative Nonfiction Magazine, and their theme for that call was wait. And I <laughs> know it was actually called wait. That was the, the wow. theme. And I know, isn't that cosmic? And so when I it's saw cosmic. the call, it, it's so cosmic. And so when I saw the call, it immediately triggered me to think of my grandfather's funeral because my grandfather's funeral and just Ilocano funerals, you know, in general, um, it's all about the ritual of waiting. And I thought, oh my God, I have my essay. So then I started writing and it actually started off as a as a flash piece. Can you believe it? <laughs> it started off as like a thousand words. Wow. And um, so I and I, it was funny because when I had the thousand words, I thought, oh, I'm done. You know, I don't have anything else to say. And I had passed on the essay to my little sister who I adore. You know, she's you know, I adore her. I love her to pieces. And she started to help me put together a larger essay because it triggered her to remember memories of that time. And so she was able to give me pieces of that time, which I wasn't present for. So because I was in upstate New York, you know, going to law school um, and when he was dying, I wasn't there. And so she became um, that person, that representative from that time where I wasn't present and give me that information. And so in giving me that information, I think we even emailed about it. Um, and, you know, my, my sister, she's very, very talented. She's an artist herself. And, you know, she's definitely a writer. Um, and when she wrote this email to me, I just thought, gosh, her, her language wow. alone is, is gorgeous. And so what I did is I took that information and, you know, transformed it into my own prose um, and made it into the second person actually very strategically. Um. Um, the reason I chose second person is because I really wanted a reader, regardless of whatever ethnicity they were, to really step into my shoes and really understand ritual. Um, and that's why I put it in you. That is so interesting because, you know, I always write in first and I had not realized that you wrote it in second. And right yeah. now I see the you. And that yeah. is so interesting. And I just have a quick anecdote. Um, similarly, I have a story about my grandfather called Grandpa's House. And I was triggered to write that story after reading a piece in The New Yorker about a man who leaves his estate to his caretaker who was a nurse. And she ends up giving it back to the family. And it was such this, it just made me remember that my mom had, was the only sibling that really visited my grandfather in Norco, California. We'd go there every weekend. It was this ritual every weekend. And when he died, he left everything to my mom. 
and she split it between her eight brothers. So it was like $10,000 each. And back then, $80,000 would have been like a small fortune. It would have paid off my parents' house. And she instead split it between all the siblings. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I think it's interesting that one word like weight or one story weight. like mine can, can um, trigger this whole, I mean, this beautiful essay that you wrote. And you capture the dynamic of family in it and funerals. I mean, it's almost like a road trip. A funeral, you will see the family dynamics and all the um, the eccentric nature of families. And there's always a cast of characters. And I, I just thought it was beautifully written. Oh, what do you, what you. does your family think about it? I know your sister, you know, was your historian in some ways. But what did the rest of the family think? What Did you have to run it by them? or? Um. That's a really interesting <laughs> and complicated question. Um, I don't discuss my writing with my family. Um, I know. <laughs> I, uh, my, my I can learn is- something from you because <laughs> yeah. I've had so much trauma from when my mom and my sisters may disagree with something and it'll turn into these um like fights and crying sessions and maybe it's better to create separation, but go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. What were you going to say? Yeah. I, I've been writing for such a long time and um, very, very long, like, you know, grade school and it's, you know, it's a gift. Like I, I didn't, I didn't really see it as anything, you know, it's just like something I did. Um, not knowing like, no, you, you have a gift. Like this is, this is a thing. Yeah. And so I've been writing for a very long time and my younger sister has always been supportive. She's, you know, also an artist though. So we've kind of been supportive of each other um, in that. But in terms of the storytelling and the writing, that's not something yeah I discuss with my family. I think, I think when it comes to my family, because there's such painful issues, um, that I feel need to be brought to light, especially within our culture where there's a lot of silencing and shaming. I think if I had diet. Oh, she froze. She did. Because then then at that point, I think I would feel, um, I don't know. I would, I would feel impeded. Like, like I wouldn't be able to actually write my story. Cause then I'd feel like someone's constantly looking over my shoulder. And, and I think when you write, I really, I really feel like there's, there's freedom there. And um, I think also when you're connecting to your readers who also have that same dynamic, well, they, where they can't go to their families for certain reasons that they will find a sanctuary in the storytelling. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I've, that's how I approach things. It, that's it. Yeah. It's a really complicated question. It really is. It is. And I think every writer of memoir de- deals with this issue. And I think I need to put more separation myself. So I'm learning something today uh, because there is a freedom in being able to tell your own truth, your own way without censorship without feeling like, um, because I always try to acknowledge when I don't know something or when um, I'm not sure about something or if something's how I, I 
feel like it could be like this, but I'm not completely sure. Um, my memoir, my narrator is a little bit unreliable because she's kind of like a Sally J. Friedman when I was young. I always wanted to be like the center of attention. And so I'd create these dramatic episodes in my head. I remember one time my mom put me in my bedroom and I splashed water all over my face and my friends were coming over to come get me. And I was like, <gasps> she locked me in my room. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like so much drama, like, like, who do you think you are? You think you're a movie star. And now this kind of makes sense as podcasting thing. Cause I get to play it up, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important as artists and writers, a memoir that we acknowledge what we don't know, but that we also realize that sometimes perceptions differ and my truth and my sister's truth and my mom's truth and my dad who's passed away his truth are all going to be different yeah yeah I I think at the end of the day when I do write about family I never want to antagonize anybody um Mm -hmm. like I know there's some very painful truths that I brought to light especially in weight which is the the opening essay but I think it's it's not really a mechanism to judge family. It's not that at all. It's actually to be compassionate over how we behave when we grieve because grieving demands our vulnerability. And because grieving demands vulnerability, I mean, you have to imagine for people who are not comfortable in being vulnerable, they might behave not in favorable ways necessarily. And I, there is nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly normal. Um, and I want people to know, like, you know, when a family grieves, it's not going to be perfect. It's, you know, you're you're asking so much of a family and how they're going to behave. And so things come out. I mean, it, you know, it gets it can get pretty explosive, maybe not for all families. But, um, yeah, I mean, it it really demands vulnerability that you know, among individuals. And so sometimes we just might not act favorably during, you know, during that time. Yeah. And we have some comments. I'm just going to read them out loud uh, so you can see what people are saying. They're really enjoying this conversation. Uh, Alex Barraza, who's an attorney I work with, it. he's uh, in criminal court, mental health court with me. Alex Barraza, you guys are amazing. Jocelyn Nguyen, yes, I really enjoyed reading the Filipino traditions in your book. It was relatable to my own family. Um, And then Jen Meadows says, memory is so fluid, which is very true. And um, then Cindy Nessinger um, says, writing about trauma is hard. Thanks for asking uncomfortable questions. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's hard. And, you know, we all approach it differently. And I think that for me, my favorite part of being a writer and why I started this podcast was because I met the most amazing people that just enveloped me and I trusted and they, we opened up to one another. And there was this different relationship with writers as a community. And I just wanted to highlight people. I, I, you're an amazing person, an amazing writer. (laughs) You're amazing too. (laughs) Love, love, love. Hey, so, um, you know, um, just really quick to end about our conversation on weight. Um, what I found really interesting were the parallels in our lives. Um, you feel a lot of guilt in the essay about not being there when your grandfather passes because you're trying to finish your classes at law school. And I similarly um, 
you know, almost didn't go home the day my dad died. I was at a big firm in San Francisco. I was a corporate lawyer at the time. And my husband, I had just been home for two weeks helping to take care of my dad on hospice. And they told me he had months left and I wasn't going to go home. And my husband told me, you need to go this weekend. I don't care how much work you have to do. And he died that Saturday. And if I hadn't been there, I can't even imagine what would have happened because it was a horrible day, but me and my sisters and my mom, we all needed to be there together when it happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, one of the things about that time is that because uh, I was in New York and, you know, all my family was in California and I really did try getting home as quickly as possible. I saw that. And so I've always um, my property law professor who I was, you know, crying in her office it's, it's just oh speaking of which so this week actually is um been 20 years wow. yeah since my grandfather died so it's very weird and cosmic that we're having this conversation um exactly like 20 years from when it happened mm-hmm. um, and so we are living actually now during the waiting period of what would have been the waiting period 20 years ago so um But yeah, I remember really wanting to get home as soon as possible. And I felt like, like I was trying to be professional and like, you know, talk to all of my professors and it was my property law professor who I will never forget her compassion and just, you know, she's a phenomenal lady. She was, you know, she sat me down and it was so different because in class, you know, when we're doing the Socratic method, she was just so um, stern and, you know, not you know, I wouldn't say compassionate, but it's just like very, very professional. And so when I sat in her office, I remember crying and she was just different. Like she was so nice. And she was like, you know, you don't have to go and see every professor and tell them like what you can do is you can go to the dean and they will, you know, let your professors know. So you can just go home. You can drop everything and you can go home. And it was so comforting to hear that kind of permission you know because I think you know when you're that young too in an industry where it's all business it was so nice to have that interaction with her uh, you know and giving me permission to say we're human we can grieve we we're not robots we can feel we go home um yeah and I will never and we can take off that suit uh literally and figuratively and the thing my dad's death um He gave me permission to dream again and be my creative self. You know, when he died, um, I left my husband in San Francisco, who was in dental school. I left the big firm. I came to California and lived in Colton with my twin sister. We fought like cats and dogs. But uh, I went to another firm. But after a year, I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I would rather not practice law than do law that I knew the first day it was not the field for me. And then when I came to the public defender's office, I knew the first day I was in the right place. So I think that, um, you know, my dad was a dreamer. He was always chasing windmills. He owned a bar. Um, My parents had nothing as far as financially, but he had this dream to own a bar and he did it. And so I think that, you know, death can sometimes also teach us these lessons. Right. Be yourself. Be who you want to be. You are. I always felt like I was trapped when I was at the corporate law firm. I chose this. I chose this life. I need the money. I got to pay off my student loans. But then when my dad died, I just said, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm going to be who I want to be and hell be damned, you know? 
Yeah, I think for me, it was, um, so there's after the funeral. Yeah. Which is the, the rape. Yeah. Uh, piece. Yeah. And it actually originally was part of weight. And actually oh, that what? piece was really the hardest thing I ever wrote in my life. Um, I can see why, but it's beautifully done, but horrific, right? Yeah. So when I look back on that, I had never, ever discussed it with anybody, not even my closest girlfriends, like never, ever talked about that time. And so when I wrote it, I really had to dig inside my memory and conjure it. And it was actually originally part of Wait, the first essay, but I ended up taking it out and made it its own essay and then actually set it, you know, apart because just aesthetically, I realized like I was taking away the spotlight from my grandfather and I wanted the spotlight to be on him. And so I removed that section and I made it its own. And then what happens to that first section to, you know, part one of the collection, I don't, I mean, if anyone ever wants to dig really deep about like what is Elsa doing here um, artistically is that I wanted to start with, you know, the death of this beloved family member. And then the second essay is actually about my maternal grandparents and about the last moment they had together before mm-hmm. my maternal grandfather died because he died at 28, so I never met him. And then the third essay, which is about, you know, rape, sexual assault with an intimate partner, it's a, it's a, def- it's a different kind of dying. Yeah. Um, so you have all these parts that have to do with death, but with the last part with, you know, you know rape with an intimate partner, it's a, it's, you know, to me, it's a type of spiritual death, but then there's a reclamation and a resurrection out of that, that happens after the funeral. And it only, it's like triggered because of the death of a beloved family member. And then, you know, the narrator then realizes her worth. And so that's how that all, that first section all ties together. So, um, wow. I love how you reclaim that because, you know, as a survivor myself, th- these are stories I haven't written, maybe never, may never write. And um, they're too painful. And uh, I, I really admire. And I did notice in your book, your separations and how you structured everything. And I thought it was just so fluid and artistically done. And um, your your quotes the titles, everything in this essay collection is inspiring to me because I'm working on an essay collection right now along with my memoir. And I think that it just goes to show that these um, genres, right, memoir, essay collection, they're really one in the same um, as far as how you can play with them. And I think that um, reclaiming uh, your identity and reclaiming your worth is a great lesson to take away from that your whole book yeah Yeah. like I you know I had arguments with myself about why I put the funeral piece first because it is very heavy it starts off like we're gonna just dive in oh it's perfect though I love it yeah I mean the way yeah, yeah the way I see it is you know I think in our western society death is seen as the end but I don't see it that way I see it as a beginning and that's why I wanted to start there well, that is so um, prescient because what I say at the end of my chapter is I'm going to go back to the beginning. Yeah. When my dad dies, that's the impetus for my next chapters to go back to childhood and try to hear him. I write to hear my father's voice. I say this a lot. 
I, I started writing to hear him because when I hear him, when I write, I hear him and I've had a psychic say he's over my shoulder watching me. And I really, truly believe that our elders are there. And my father knows I'm writing about him and knows I'm sorry that I never said everything I should have said. You know, mm-hmm. He would always tell me, you're going to regret it one day, Jenny, when I'm gone. And he's right. And I'm like, oh, how dare you be right about that, dad? Because I regret it. I was not grateful. I was not always loving. I was not always kind. But I can be kind in my writing now. Not that I show him as perfection. He's not. He is a chasing windmills, you know, a very flawed, addictive, drunk, alcoholic, but loving father. But I can show him, show that I love him through my prose. You know, it doesn't have to be. I don't have to have a negative tone. It's always loving, even showing his faults. It's loving. Right. Well, I think, I think what's um, like, I mean, what we're talking about here is just like the magic of writing because I feel like when we're writing, especially about our, you know, beloveds that have passed on, um, we're conjuring, you know, it's, it's magical. I mean, it's not magical like Harry Potter. That's not like, it's a different kind of magical where the writing actually conjures them as if they are still here. And it's kind of frightening because when I do write about my grandfather, so I'm writing another essay and he also appears in this other essay. It's like, he's still here. And it's like that moment literally just happened yesterday. (laughs) It's like, there's no time lapse. Um, So I think, uh, you know, like my title, I call it We Are No Longer Babylon because the Babylon, just to give you some background, um, were the high priestesses that c- comprised of women and gender fluid individuals that existed before Spanish colonization came in, violently took over, restructured society. And so we have these rituals that are, you know, surreptitiously hidden in these religious practices that we do today. And so it's a question of how do the descendants of these high priestesses, how do they operate today in the diaspora? And there are still Babylon that are in the Philippines that are rigorously trained, that go through the instruction. And I don't want to insult them at all. I like I wouldn't say that I myself am a Babylon because I I am not trained um, as one. I if I've observed any kind of ritual, it's an observation, but it hasn't been like a lesson or instruction that's formal. And so it really becomes a question of, you know, we are no longer by the bylaw. Are we? Are we not? Where are we? So I love magic because, you know, I was a Wiccan in high school. I still consider myself somewhat of a witchy poo and I love anything mystical and cosmical. That's why I love David Bowie um, <laughs> and, and, and Susie Sue, the ultimate witch. Um, but do you want to read a passage? Because I don't know how many of my questions I'm going to get through, but I want you to read a passage. <laughs> Um, yeah. I, I could talk forever. I might have to have you on again. I want you I to know, we can talk. Oh, we could talk for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> we could go till midnight. <laughs> we, oh, we totally could. It's kind of scary that we could. <laughs> I really want people to hear your beautiful, lyrical, uh, insightful prose. And you're such an amazing writer. Do you mind reading two to three minutes of something? Yeah, I actually, I do have something set aside. So just to give you um, some background, 
um, because 20 years ago, it was, you know, the death of my grandfather. And so I am going to be reading from White. And I'm going to be reading the section because um, it's about my sister turning 21 during this week. So it's like a week of mourning. And then also to have this milestone 21st birthday, um, which I'm sure sticks in her memory today. It sticks in mine for sure. And so I'm going to de delve into that piece really. And it's for, it's really for her because you know, I love her to pieces. I'm On the same night, it had been his wife's and youngest grandchild's birthday. So it was also my grandmother's birthday. We have the same birthday. His wife, 87, the youngest grandchild, 21. You had celebrated his 90th birthday just a little bit over a month ago when everyone thought he would live until 100. He was still farming everyone's yards, collecting his recycling and selling his lemons in the parking lot of Seafood Ranch Market. His wife's and youngest grandchild's birthday were a day apart, but they were still known as the birthday twins. As the day fell on the same day when you considered the international time zone continuum. When it was Wednesday in the old country, it was Tuesday in the adopted one when the youngest grandchild had been born. Thus, the same birthday. She would not only share the same birthday with his wife, but she would be the sole heir to his ears. They were not necessarily big, but they protruded, accentuating her already gorgeous face the way his own ears had accentuated his handsome face when he was young. She was also the only American-born grandchild. When he was 11 and receiving an education from the school the Americans had set up in his barrio, did he ever dream that one of his grandchildren might be born in the adopted country? The youngest grandchild had turned 21, a milestone age most people can't wait to turn the legal age to drink and party the night away. There was no wild drinking that night, but you still might've called what you did partying the night away in a different way. The youngest grandchild had spent the earlier part of the evening stringing in memoriam tags to 90 lemons. It had been her brilliant idea to give them away as favors at the funeral, something her Lilong would have done himself as lemons were one of his more popular and successful fruits he sold in the parking lot of Seafood Ranch Market. Before the birthday cake was brought out and before anyone could sing happy birthday, your grandmother noticed her children's heads uncovered. She reprimanded each of them, demanding that their heads be covered in black veils out of respect for him. Everyone, children, spouses, and grandchildren must wear black tulle veils and wear black for an entire year. But you are told you are exempt from this rule, being part of the younger generation raised in this adopted country. You, your siblings and cousins wear black anyway. You choose to wear black for 30 days after the funeral. As your parents, aunts and uncles donned black tulle veils like bonnets with the ends tied under their chins, you remember black and white photographs of funerals in the old country, of everyone, men, women, and children, donning black veils in bonnet fashion. 
Agpanis. You remember old photographs of a younger grandfather standing al alongside other family members beside the coffin of an unknown ancestor, each mourner having one end of their veils held between their lips. You did not know why. You had asked your aunt, your grandfather's eldest daughter, but she only replied, that's just what they did. You wanted to know why they did. Both your parents could not recall ever placing the veil in their mouths, a practice so ancient that it had now fallen away with your parents' generation, though the last time they claimed to be witnesses to the practice was when they were children themselves, the practice performed by elders at funerals in the Ilocos. Your mother explains the symbol of teeth in dreams. Teeth falling out in dreams meant the imminent death of a family member. She and you could only surmise that the veil biting might symbolize the clenching onto life literally within one's teeth while keeping death at bay as family members were required to clothe their heads with death itself in honor of their deceased loved one. It's then you are schooled on the rituals that you must follow during the waiting. Motherland rituals that have now been reduced to superstition in the adopted country as your ancestral practices are suddenly equated to black cats and broken mirrors. Ooh. What a great last line. Black cats and broken mirrors. I love that line. Um, I was writing some down, keeping death at bay, clothe their heads with death. I mean, just this, you know, th that's why we titled this episode Writing Grief because you capture it. And we're almost out of time. I can't believe it. I'm going to have you back on. But um, a couple things. Um, first, I have to give away a T-shirt. Um, and this is the Life of Gem T-shirt. And Elsa, I'll send you one, too. I'll get your address and send you one. Um, so if anyone um, knows the answer to this trivia question, the first person who puts it in the comment box, I quoted in my blog this week, what nature-obsessed writer said we live, we live lives of quiet desperation? Who said that? What nature-obsessed writer said we live lives, most people live, lives of quiet desperation? So um, I also uh, want to note that we had a death last week of an Inland Empire African-American writer. Selena Diana Bumpus, she was an amazing um, activist and writer and teacher in the community. She worked with the elderly at the senior center. So I just want to um, also say in this episode about grief that we grieve you, Selena, and we miss you. So if we want to bring Elsa back in really quick, um, Elsa, do you want to tell people how they can buy your amazing book that I'm going to pronounce right? We are no longer Bye Bye Land. Did I say it right? Bye Bye Land. Bye Bye Land. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So um, Amazon or how can they get it? Um, I actually have preferred bookseller links on my website, which is screening at the bottom there, slicingtomatoes.com. Um, so you can buy it at Bookshop. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble. Um, you can buy it at Thrift Books. So, or you can buy it from me if you want a nice little message. 
Um, you can go to my contact page on slicingtomatoes.com. There's a PayPal button there. My Venmo handle is also there. Um, and okay. I will definitely mail it to the reader personally with a nice little personalized message. And that is the best. I, Because I know so many writers now, I collect my signed copies. And I, like I was telling Elsa before we started, I take my books into the bathtub and stuff. So sometimes um, the whatever they wrote will be like kind of sneered. But it doesn't matter because it's it's love for these books. I love books. I love writers. I love you, Elsa. Oh, You're I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this was going to be fun. Uh, and hopefully one day maybe you can come visit and come yes. live after all this COVID Absolutely. stuff is over. Absolutely. I yes. would love to have you in studio. Um, we have a winner, 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 chicken dinner, Hanaveva in Hawaii, Molokai. Shout out, aloha. <laughs> I stayed at her house in Molokai before. Um, Hanaveva and I met through Vona. She just won a Life of Gem t-shirt. So I'll send you a text or a, a message and get you that. Um, yay. So um, thank you, Elsa. Thank you, DJ, producer April. Um, I'm going to take a little hiatus for about three weeks, but check out my Life of Gem Facebook page for my next episode. Um, guest uh, will be announced. Um, I have a couple people set up, but I had to move some dates around because of spring break and because I'm getting my vaccine shot. So uh Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Elsa. Buy her Thank book. You. Go to her website, slicingtomatoes.com. Her book is it's such a beautiful cover. Who did the cover? Um, it's a Manila-based artist. Her name is Isabel Francisco. And we became friends, actually through friends of friends. We, I mean, I've known her for a long time. But um, I've always loved her art. And I remember seeing this piece, which actually the title of the painting is called Engine. And I was like, that is going to be the cover like it just it just is it speaks so much to the title it's beautiful I mean I just love it I love the colors too this yeah. whole like uh the blue. I like the disappearing face and the mouth actually is disappearing mm -hmm. which you know to me speaks so much about like we're kind of disappearing but also reclaiming so yeah oh. Okay, well, let's dance it out. Thanks for coming on. We're going to have you on again because we didn't even get through half my questions. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk off air a little bit more. But thanks, everyone, for watching. Bye.